People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trojan inviting you to this week's edition of People of Note. And, as you will know, uh, on the 12th of September, the dramatic Puccini opera Tosca opens here at Artscape with Cape Town Opera. And the conductor is Bjorn Bantok, who is passionate about teaching and runs the conducting course for the National School Symphony Orchestras in Malvern College and the conducting course for the Open String Festival in Denmark. He is also founded and is principal conductor of the London Chamber Strings, which showcases London's finest string professionals, handpicked specifically for their musical integrity and stunning virtuosity. The London Chamber Strings are led by David Juritz, whom we know very well here in Cape Town. So, Bjorn, welcome. It's good to have you here. And it's good to know that you're doing such a dramatic opera. I mean, what could be more dramatic, possibly, than Wagner, than Tosca by Puccini? It's utterly stunning. So firstly, thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely delightful to be in the Cape again. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to get off the aeroplane and smell <laughs> the sea and smell the, the earth of Africa. It's, it's quite stunning to be here. And I feel honored and lucky and I feel truly honored to be able to be working with the fantastic musicians of Cape Town Opera and the city's amazing Symphony Orchestra. Good. Well, that means you can stay because you've been so complimentary. But, uh, Bjorn, you've got a link with Cape Town, haven't you? Didn't you study in Stellenbosch? Cape Town, South Africa, anyway, is quite has been important in your life. That's correct. So um, I was actually born in Kroenstadt, believe it or not, in the middle of nowhere. Grew up in Bloemfontein until I was about uh, 16 got called up to the army and I thought perhaps that's not a good idea (laughs) and went to the UK. Um, I then came back and I lived in Cape Town and then I went to Stellenbosch to study at the Conservatoire of Music there with an unbelievably amazing teacher, Magdalena Roo. Um, And she was incredibly important to me and basically taught me how to play the cello. Because the cello was Um, your instrument, wasn't it? Your main instrument. So I I, I studied with her and also learned a tremendous amount from a violin teacher, Jack DeVette. Mm. I then won a scholarship to go to the UK and decided to go to the Royal Northern College of Music, where I did another um, degree. And then ended up in Amsterdam, studying with Gregor Horsch, who was the principal cellist of the Concertgebouw at that time. Um, And then I had an unfortunate accident. I fell through a big glass pane door and cut my um, left arm from wrist to elbow. And basically overnight was unable to play the cello anymore. Good grief. So I had to find something else to do. And I've always wanted to be a musician since since I was five or something. I, I couldn't imagine possibly doing anything else. It's in my genes and in my family, and I just had to do it. And then basically fell into conducting. I tried a few other instruments. It was quite late. I was in my early 20s already, and I then started being trained as a conductor and landed up with Colin Metters at the Academy in London. And I was with Colin for about five years, and that's what I've been doing ever since. 
Had you thought of conducting before, or was it only as a result of this accident? Uh, no, I'd never considered conducting. I wanted to be uh, a cellist. Well, first of all, I'm a musician, but I wanted to play the cello since the day I, uh, I can remember being aware of classical music, which was very young. So there was mm -hmm. a lot of music in the house, and I learned the piano when I was you know, sitting on my mother's lap as a toddler and stuff. But the cello always, when I heard the cello, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, so the, the conducting, I've grown to love it and um, grown to... You know, I've become competent, I hope, at what I'm doing. And in the same way that I trained myself to be a cellist, I, I trained myself in the same way to be a, a conductor and approached it in the same way. And mm -hmm. with, with but as I said in the introduction, you run lots of conducting courses. I mean, conducting is very much now your lifeblood. Yes, it is. Um, I mean, I'm incredibly passionate about teaching. I actually fell into teaching as a student studying under Magdalena. I was incredibly poor and I didn't have any money and I was living in a bicycle shed with, <laughs> <Yeah>. some, <laughs> with some artists, art students and I, I literally didn't have any money and she said, I will give you some of my, uh, my younger pupils and you can teach them and you can keep the money and that will you'll be able to eat and pay rent and so i then at a very i mean i was probably 16 then or 17 at a mm -hmm. very young age i was thrust into having to be responsible and think responsibly and and have an awareness outside my own egotistical self which was very good so i w i was challenged immediately to start thinking how how to possibly help people musically but Bjorn, um you clearly know what you're doing up there on the podium clearly it's a, a gift but just i want to go back to accident it must have been a huge traumatic thing to have happened to you to have realized and it's your left arm isn't it so it's the fingering yeah. arm you must have uh, how you survived that and just didn't throw in the towel is very much too well i was talking to a really good friend of mine uh, a couple of days ago who's a who's a um, musician in the cape as well and we were talking about depression and and things like this and i was saying you basically just get beat down and people beat you down with sticks. And then the choice is either you lie down or you give up or you get back up again. And I think um, practicing is, is exactly the same. You need to try as hard as you can with complete integrity and complete commitment and complete truth and love. And then you have to fail. And then by failing, you learn something about yourself or your technique or your emotions or your uh, inadequacies. And then the choice is, do I carry on? Do I give up? Do I stay where I am? So I think it's just a process of being beaten down and having to stand up again. And um, I think that's true for learning a, a string instrument or learning to conduct or a, or a marriage or a relationship or anything. Learning to bake or <laughs> bake sourdough. <laughs> I mean, you fail and fail and fail. And then slowly by through failure, you become calm, collected and competent in, in what you do. And assured uh, of yourself as well. Well, I think assurance... Um, I remember when I started studying conducting, how shocked I was at how arrogant and revolting, I would say, the ethos was around conducting masterclasses. And no one really seemed to want to practice in the same way that string players or, or other musicians do at Conservatoire, where you dedicate yourself uh, from morning to night. And, you know, we used to break into the Conservatoire, please forgive me, but we used to break <laughs> in at the weekend <laughs> through the fire door because we were so desperate. There were a group of about five of us 
who were so desperate to be able to practice from Friday evening until Monday morning. And we, we couldn't bear the idea of the, this ridiculous idea that they would lock the building. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have some kind of desperate desire and need to and want passion. to create music. Yeah, I and think it's passion. And the thing driving it all is the desire to make music. Yeah. Um, I think one thing I was said to the singers a couple of days ago, I, I'm, I'm having such a wonderful time working with the company of the Cape Town Opera because there's such a wonderful energy and youthful desire to actually really just focus on the music and try and get the most um, aesthetically truthful integrity in, in, in the score and in the sound. It's a rare thing. It's a really rare thing. And the, the more you're a professional and the more you work uh, I mean, I'm 51 now, so I've been trying to be a musician for 46 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly you've got. And yeah, clearly. the longer you do it, the the rarer that becomes. Yeah, so yeah. the more you realise what a rare thing it is to find musicians with real integrity. You've chosen such a beautiful piece of music to begin, Morgan, the Richard Strauss song, and that famous recording with Jesse Norman and Kurt Mazur. So Jesse Norman, I've got such a soft spot for this incredible voice and this incredible woman. I I chose her because she haunted me as a child. I used to put speakers on the floor with a, with an LP. Those you guys remember those round black records that you'd put, and I'd put the put the speakers facing each other, put on a record like this one, this Phillips album with a brown and red cover and put my head on a pillow between the speakers and become completely absorbed and uh, transmorphified, I'd say, or, you know, I'd, I'd go on a trip, basically, <laughs> until the needle reached the end of the, of the, the record and then have to yeah. get up and, <laughs> and turn it over. So, yeah, Jesse Norman's voice is just utterly stunning and this Morgan is such a beautiful piece of music. I love the way it's so simple. When you look at the score... It's just G major. It starts as this beautiful rising triad in G major. And then there's it toys with little G sharps coming, which, which musically is so incredibly uh, risque because you're putting the note right next to the tonic. So you're taking, instead of G, you're putting down G sharp, which although it's the most close to the G, is the furthest away mm-hmm. harmonically. It's incredibly clever. And then when she starts singing, she starts on a G sharp. So she starts on the raised or the minor second of, from the tonic and then produces this unbelievably sublime, gentle song of just passionate joy. It's simply fantastic music. Thank you. 
one of the magical songs by Richard Strauss Morgan, with Jesse Norman there and Kurt Mazur, that famous recording which also includes the four last songs. The first choice of my guests on People of Note this week, Björn uh, Bantok, who's in town to conduct Tosca, Puccini's dramatic opera, which I'm going to get to in a moment, but I'm fascinated by your surname because Granville Bantock is a fairly well-known English composer whom I discovered quite late in life and found him fascinating because of his influence of Wagner and all that. So is there a link? Um, yes, Granville, also Granville Bantock is my great-great-grandfather um, and um, music has been in the family. He was he took up the position of the principal of the Birmingham Conservatoire um, I think it was at the Academy before that in London, and uh, had great acclaim when he was alive. He he went out of fashion a bit in the early part of the last century, but now I think they've done at least six or seven of his works at the proms, and there is an absolute treasure trove of literally hundreds. I think he wrote over 600 songs and dozens of choral works and symphonies and yeah, he was very prolific, I would say, and very influenced by the kind of post-Debussy-esque, very, very late romanticism of England at the time. I kind of pushed back against my family heritage as a student. I didn't want to 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 ride on the coattails of anyone and, and deliberately didn't perform any of his work. So he oh. wrote a cello, I think at least one cello sonata, several solo pieces for cello and so on and piano. But I, I decided I didn't want to, to learn these as a student. I wanted to have find my own voice and, and, and find uh, integrity on my own merit. Okay, fair um, enough. Fair but enough. but re- recently as a conductor, I've performed some of his works, the, a couple of the symphonies, the Hebridean Symphony, um, the Pagan Symphony. There's a fantastic piece he wrote for Brass Band, which has been orchestrated, Prometheus Unbound, mm-hmm. the, the, the incredible idea of being punished by the gods, tied to a rock, and having your liver pecked out daily. <laughs> I think we a lot of people have jobs like that. <laughs> we must um, play some on Fine Music Radio because that Hebridean Symphony, for example, is a lovely piece. But we are here to discuss Puccini and Tosca, which is why you're in town, um, with Cape Town Opera, which opens, incidentally, on the 12th of September for a relatively short run. So you must make sure you get your tickets because Tosca is the sort of thing like La Boheme, that fills the house. And it fills the house for good reason, Bjorn, don't you think? Because it's a marvelous music and an incredibly dramatic thriller-type story. So I think, without a doubt, it's the kind of alpine, most monumental opera of the genre. It's, it's rather like Strauss's alpine symphony. It's just this monument of sound and monument of color and monument of drama. And the characters are fascinating because they're all trapped and tied up in this terrible this terribly emotionally cathartic place where they're in each is living in their own tragedy and and they're fighting with each other and conflicting and there's jealousy and there's hatred and there's an attempted rape and there's murder and there's a suicide and and there's the church there's a catholic church pervading on it and rome falling down and napoleon coming over the alps uh, uh, like Hannibal before him and a war going on with the Austrians and it's just 
And it all takes place in a very, over 24 hours. I mean, it's incredibly condensed. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the characters, in a way, I wrote this in my program notes, they basically, for me, represent our own archetypes. I think we're fascinated by them because we somehow subconsciously identify with the, all the terribleness that they are manifesting. Somehow it resonates in us as human beings. And, and the score, I mean, the score is just sublime. It is so saturated with, with markings for everyone. And virtually every entry for every singer has extra indications, not, not just the usual Latin, I mean, not, sorry, not Latin, the, the usual Italian markings like Allegro or whatever. Mm-hmm. They, it says Mysterioso with, with great passion or in a honeyed way or w- with, with terrible anger or viciously. It's, it's incredibly rich. But also it makes incredibly hard, difficult, demanding technical um, expectations of everyone, of the singers, of the orchestra, of the chorus. And I think for me the the most dramatic and epic of the event in the whole opera is the end of Act One, where Puccini is an absolute master of wheeling together these different conflicting and contrasting ideas of the church Scarpia's uh, pathological, uh, nightmarish m- manipulation of everyone, the contrasting characters screaming at each other at the top of their voice, it's the amazing. cannon going <laughs> off, the <laughs> choir singing, the children's choir singing, you know, incense flailing, the orchestra going mental, there's tam-tams going, there's timpani going, there's more cannons, <laughs> and it, it ends in this climactic or sort of orgiastic welling up of emotion. And that's the end of Act One only, and then we've, mm-hmm. we've got two acts to go. And um, you mentioned, Bjorn, just before we came into the studio, that Puccini had t- uh, taken a different approach to choruses in this opera, like you've just said, with this Te Deum sequence where he gets the children to sort of mutter and like congregation in a church and yet builds to this extraordinary climax. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, if you read his letters and so on, there's very interesting ideas where he's, he, was, he was openly anti-kind of organized Roman Catholicism. He's, he was quite open about that. But at the same time, he was a true, true artist, a manipulator, and able to use the sounds of the church and put it in a church near the castle. And he was very interested in creating that sound that happens in a church. Because if you think about what happens in a church, a lot of the time there's muttering, there's chatting, there's, or if you think in a synagogue, there's a lot of talking going on, which has nothing to do with the service before and after, sometimes even during. And he was interested in that sound and mm-hmm. trying to get the, the chorus to mutter Latin. And, 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 and that's all interspersed and interwoven with the whole texture. That's very interesting. I must mention, because this is quite remarkable, Puccini actually stayed over the night in the castle. He spent one night sleeping on the battlements overnight so that he could wake up at 3.30 or 3 a.m. in the morning and hear the bells of Rome sounding at the actual battlements of the castle. He then wrote down the individual pitches and the rhythms of the bells that he was hearing, as well as the distance that he could hear. So he says, this one's a B-flat, it's near, and he wrote the pitch down, he said, that one's an E-flat, it's very, very far away and very low. He wrote down all these pitches, and then 
went and spent loads of money. Uh, he spent loads of money of the budget of the production on having bells made and having <laughs> bells founded and was incredibly unpopular with the management. So the management got terribly cross with him and it's because he was, he was very excited and wasting all this money. But in the opera, we have the most fantastic set of bells. I've, I've been downstairs and um, spoken to uh, the percussionist, Eugene Trofimchik, and they, there's a, a huge set. Some of them are like nine and a half, ten feet long. And they are scattered in the in the backstage at the end of Act One, and they sound off at different distances. So there's all that going on as well. Mm. So quite Gosh. quite a spectacular composition. But um, for you then, Bjorn, it must be quite difficult to for queuing with children there as well, or the queuing, the bells. Keeping it all together must be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I mean, that's like learning a string instrument. It's the same. There's a, there's a technique you have to learn and yeah. you have to, uh, you know, you have to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and, and make sure that you do the work before the day and at the end of the day. And you, you, you just have to find the time to practice and, and, and uh, learn the score and translate the text and learn all the and, – and then once you've learned it and spent, you know, I don't know, a couple of hundred hours learning the, the notes and the harmonies and the text and everything, you then have to practice it and uh, practice it in the same way that you would practice, you know, Dvorak Cello Concerto mm. and spend hours and hours and hours in front of a mirror and video yourself and have um, uh, criticism from people and, yeah. and, and try yeah. and learn in the same way that, that, that you learn an instrument. We're going to take another piece of music, uh, Bjorn, in the midst of this exciting story. Um, Gabriel Fore, you've asked for A Pre on Rev with cello and piano. Yeah, I was asked to, to, to recommend four songs and, and thought carefully about it. They're all somehow very full of pathos and, and tragedy in a way, but also this terrible thing that we have to deal with as a species, uh, the awareness that we will die. I think that's a fascinating part of how it reflects in art and how it reflects in music and painting. And the nature of our world is so violent and um, it's incredibly paramount and evident in Tosca, for example. But also these songs are, are very gentle and tender at the same time. There's a tenderness in, in, in them. And when I thought of Apres on Rev, I thought of the, this fantastic cellist who, was a, who, who brought the CD out when I was studying at Stellenbosch, Misha Maisky. Um, and he, he's, a, he's a very interesting guy because he's, he's kind of not of the mold. He, he, in, in Manchester, where I was there, I don't know, six years, there were three cello festivals, international cello festivals. He wasn't invited to a single one, which is quite unprecedented. But he has his own path. He has his own ideas. He's very unique. But I think he's an absolute master of performing these kind of songs on the cello. I think he's he's the cellist for me that that emulates the human voice on his instrument in the most sublime and beautiful way. So I couldn't think of any string player, maybe apart from Oistrakh, <laughs> or you know who's alive who could yeah. who could emulate a song in his way.
a much-loved piece there by Gabriel Fauré, Aprezin Rev, Misha Maisky Cello, Pavel Gililov Piano, and the second choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, the conductor Björn Bantock, who's in town to conduct Tosca. We spoke a lot about the first act. One thing I wanted to ask you before we go any further, Magdalene is directing this, Magdalene Minna, isn't she? She's amazing. We, we, we've got such a good relationship. We, we share so many ideas and visions, and it's been a, an absolute joy to work with her. We, we met for coffee actually last April when I was here doing uh, Messiah, and um, chatted and, and, and talked about music and stuff. And um, she, she's great in rehearsal. She's, she's rather like me. She's no nonsense. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but also doesn't, you know, very clear, let's do this, let's do that. This is not working. What do you think about that? But at the same time, there's a kind of easygoing uh, effluence and, and, and humor. And, you know, no one takes themselves too seriously. So it's very easy to work like that because it means you can be really productive, really hardworking, really focused but then there's a relief as well where you, where you have moments where you can just you know uh, have a laugh have a laugh and <laughs> you know uh, so, so it's, it's 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 been a joy to work with her because i should think that as a director it has its tremendous um, challenges as well after as you said that mighty te deum that ends the first act there's that second act that scary act with scarpia sitting at a table eating and really torturing tosca it's a it may, and you hear him a Cavaradossi being taught in the background as well. It's a it's a nasty act. Yeah, it's incredibly <laughs> intense. Uh, my brother-in-law and his family are coming on the last um, uh, <laughs> performance, and I may I sent him a funny uh, message on WhatsApp saying you should have a large glass of wine before Act One, <laughs> but make sure you have at least two before Act Two. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because yeah, it's incredibly intense. This poor woman Tosca is tortured and manipulated by the pathological. Uh, manipulations and evil of Scarpia, who takes great joy in manipulating her and torturing her lover before her eyes. In, in this production, it actually happens. Where you can actually see them oh, crushing right, his skull oh dear. in the background. Because it's supposed to be in the next room. Yeah, but it? they've yeah. decided to open the doors, which I, I think is a good idea because yeah. it's just for, for dramatic effect. And, and, and then, you know, they make a deal and he, he says, I'll save him. And he writes a letter, but he's lying. And then... He sets them free metaphorically and then he, you know, he says, I, I'll, I'll pretend to shoot him. And for this deal, they agree to, you know, have romantic lairs and so we say. But then she, under duress, of course, and then she pretends to, to seduce him and then or, or be wild by his advances and then stabs him through the chest <laughs> most dramatically. And he dies on the floor and. I mean, uh, morally, this is incredibly intense because he, at the moment of wanting to commit a mortal sin on Tosca, she murders him. And there's this incredible moral conundrum. Is his sin greater than hers? Is she committed a greater sin because she's murdered him because he tried to rape her? But he, of course, doesn't have time to ask for any kind of absolution. And then there's this incredibly dramatic uh, indications in the score where Tosca takes two large candelabra and puts them on either side of his body like the crucifix and then takes the dagger that she has stabbed him with, also a metaphorical crucifix, and lays it on his chest and then stands back and says, now I forgive you. 
And, I mean, this is incredibly intense stuff. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> I mean, and in the midst of this act is that incredible aria, Visi Darte, uh, which is so different from the rest of the music in the act and her pleading with him about the love of art. It's beautiful, isn't it? It relates to the, my third choice of music, and that's actually why I chose the Schubert, because it's exactly that. It's a, it's, it's a song, it's a prayer, in a way, of thanks of uh, to, to art, to the art of music. And I think we become so caught up in our daily lives and all the stuff we have to do and pay the rent and take the kids to school and eat and sleep <laughs> and all the, the kind of mechanics of living yeah. that we, even as musicians, I feel, often we forget. We're so busy trying to be jealous and push our careers forward that we, 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 we forget about what we're actually doing. We are trying to make truth. We're trying to find integrity in music. And beauty. And, and beauty. And, mm. and that makes life worth of living, course, I think. And in, in Visidarte and as in the Schubert Lied, that's exactly that. It's a prayer of thanks for the, the, the joy and the sublimity and the, the truthfulness that music has brought the artist and the public as well. Well, let's take this song by Schubert now, Andy Musik, uh, and it's, well, it's two music, basically. Thank you. 
there, the wonderful voice of Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and that song by Schubert, Andy Musik. And it was another choice of my guest here on People of Note on Fine Music Radio, Bjorn Bantok, who's the conductor of Tosca. We've discussed all the sort of drama going on in Tosca, but one thing that needs to, I forgot to ask you, Bjorn, is the cast. You've got a really nice cast, haven't you? They're amazing. I, I was completely blown away when they started singing when I arrived. I couldn't believe the strength and the power and the the volume and uh, the, the, the depth of sound of, of, of everyone. And that's without exception. So normally in a production, you'd expect the, the lead, as in the ballet that I've been uh, watching, you'd expect the lead uh, dancers or the lead soloists to be, to be exceptional. Mm-hmm. But in, in this cast, they, they, they're all exceptional. <laughs> I mean, they all have fantastic voices. And, and in that, I include the chorus, mm-hmm. who are sounding incredible today, incredibly strong and, and powerful, um, with a deep, uh, rich, silky sound. And the children cor- children's chorus as well, incredibly well-trained. Uh, confident, uh, disciplined, much better behaved than the UK children. <laughs> but let's um, go through yeah. the co- who, who's singing. So Tosca? we've got a fantastic cast. As Tosca, we have uh, Nobelunko Mkekeza. Um, she's just simply stunning, uh, unbelievable visidate and, and dramatic uh, uh, power throughout the opera. Mario is Lucanio Moyake. He uh, some incredibly beautiful uh, uh, arias, wonderful time taking, real character to his 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 um, part. Scarpia is incredibly evil. I've just realised I'm saying incredibly a lot, <laughs> but he's wonderfully evil as Conroy Scott. And Lonwabo Mose is Angelotti. A doddery church uh, um, warden. warden. Yeah. Uh, Sacristan mm. is played by Bongani Kubeka. He's very young, but wonderfully full, rich uh, 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 voice. Spoletta is played by Van Veik Fenter. Uh, Chiarone by Loisi Diamani. Oh, and the right, jailer, yeah. we have Goth Delport. And our shepherds are played by two girls, Emilia Teledo and Charnay Yup. So uh, a, a fantastically rich and talented cast of, of great singers. It's a bigger cast than you imagine, actually, because you're so focused on Scarpia, Tosca and Mario that there's so much going on at the same time around everything. And in this third act, we, we discussed the drama of the second act, but in this third act, uh, Mario gets to sing his lovely, wistful aria, Lechev on La Stella. The stars are brightly shining just before the tragedy of the opera. I think that the third act is musically very uh, risque. Um, Puccini got into, uh, um, not trouble, but the crits of the day were quite negative about what he'd done because he, there was no, there's no singing for, for several minutes. I don't know the exact time. I think it's at least eight minutes or something. There's, there's no singing. There's, it's 4 a.m. in the morning, and there's basically just a soundscape of texture. It's 4 a.m. It's like uh, Swan's Way where Proust describes a man um, waking up in the morning and he's not asleep and he's not awake and he's in that mid-state of subconsciousness where the day hasn't begun and the night hasn't ended and we just hear the bells of Rome peeling gently over from all directions um, as the morning comes alive and the inevitable 4 a.m. bell when when Cavaradossi will be shot. Mm-hmm. And he is shot because Scarapio was lying. 
and then um, she commits suicide. She does. She suicide. does. Yeah. What a terrible thing to do to 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 see your your most beloved mm. uh, shot before your eyes. And also, she goes up to him thinking that he's playing. And a he's fool. alive. It's, I know. And then she realizes horrible. he's actually dead. It's it's quite uh, terrible, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, just the way you talk about it, Bjorn, is makes you realize just how what a remarkable. Um, masterpiece this is but from all angles whether it's the children and the tadeum the various solos and the orchestra and it's a fairly big orchestra isn't it it's got for a fairly big it's orchestra it's big yes we've got uh wow there's a there's a full selection of strings there's a harp there's uh, a, a double woodwinds we have cannons there's timpani there's a lot of percussion um it, it's a really full a rich sound a lot of brass yeah. heavy brass the horns of course and incredibly clever use of the orchestra the score is very complex and there's virtually not two bars the same it changes meter all the time it moves forward it pulls back it makes rallentandas it makes a cello rondos there's pauses and it's incredibly mercurial and very advanced i think for, for, for if you think when it was written the other operas of the day were, were much more uh, uh, matter-of-fact and, and, and written quickly and easily. Mm. And, I mean, it's something to think of is that Puccini took four years to get the libretto to, to his satisfaction. So it's no small feat. We, we, we're not just – he wasn't just commissioned, let's sit down for six months and write an opera. He took four years just to find the text um, to his satisfaction. So I think it's definitely something not to be missed. And I will say to end perhaps something I say to orchestras I work with and musicians and my students regularly and think about, I would say almost daily, we have no idea when our lives will end. And it's incredibly important that we give the very best we possibly can um, as musicians in the art that we've been blessed to be able to bring to other people. And that, for me, makes life worth living. Gosh, that's a lovely uh, closing, but I'm not going to let you go yet. I'm just going to ask you very quickly, what's next on your schedule? Well, I'm missing my wife terribly. <laughs> so um, I can't wait to, uh, once this is done, to get home and be with my wonderful wife. And I have two boys, um, 15 and 13. So the first thing I'll do is uh, see them. And then um, uh, there's various other things I do. I'm going to Denmark to work with um, a, a fantastic cellist friend of mine, Jakob Kuhlberg. Uh, it's a name for you to listen to, stunning cellist. Um, I work with the Irish Memory Orchestra a lot in Ireland um, and just very, various other projects that I'm doing. But I, I do hope to be able to come back to the wonderful Cape Town and work with the fabulous musicians of, of this wonderful city. Okay, now I'll let you go if you tell us why you've chosen the Lacrimosa from the Mozart Requiem to end. Well, I have to be honest, and that is a... I spoke to Magdalena Menar about this yesterday. I was saying, oh, they've asked me to choose these songs. And I had an, a, 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 some, a Wolf leader or something that I'd chosen, and she said, what about the Mozart? And the moment she said it, I thought, yes, that's the one. Because the way it starts is just so simple. It's rather like the Schubert and like the Strauss and like the Arpres on Rev. It's actually so simple. It's just a few little notes pulsing like a, like a heart in the thicket of the wood. And the layer, a couple of layers of texture come up. And then the most sublime and beautiful sound of the voices comes into your consciousness and and takes you into another universe and w what a fantastic thing to for mozart to have written close to his inevitable death that we think probably had some awareness of yeah 
Well, thank you for that. We'll listen now to the Lacrimosa from the Requiem by Mozart. But first of all, let me thank my guest Bjorn Bantock for being so informative and interesting about this remarkable opera, which opens here at the Artscape Opera House on the 12th of September. I'm sure you feel inclined now to go and get yourself some tickets because I think it's going to sell out. Bjorn, thank you very much. Rodney, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.